Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, as we approach back to school, now is the time to get ready for your kids to get out of the house and for you to have time to join the union. That's right, jointheunion.us. Become part of the field army that will help protect American democracy for the next 15 months. Guys, we need your help on the ground. We need your help on the phones. We need your help on texts, on social media. Visit jointheunion.us and sign up today. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by New York Times bestselling author, Brad Thor. He's the author of 23 thrillers, including his latest, Deadfall, available now wherever fine books are sold. In addition to his books, he's appeared on just about every mainstream news outlet to discuss terrorism, as well as how closely his novels of international intrigue parallel the real threats facing the world today. Brad served as a member of the Department of Homeland Security's Analytic Red Cell Unit and has also lectured to law enforcement organizations on over-the-horizon and future threats. Today, he's coming to us from New York City. Brad, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here, Reed. All right, so as I mentioned before we went on, go back to Lions of Lucerne, the first in the series. So here you are, 23 books later. And, you know, as I was reading the book, one thing I appreciate is that your hero, Scott Harvath, he's feeling it a little bit in his bones. You know, some people like James Bond, right, they recycle him every generation or so, but Scott's feeling it. He's been at this a long time. He's got a girlfriend. He's got a lot of baggage and damage and everything else in his past, and here he is. He's got to suit up one more time. But I thought it was interesting that you were willing to let him get a little bit old. Yeah, you know what? Harvath represents... A lot of the people that I've known over the last couple of decades in the intelligence community and the special operations community, and I know a lot of guys who are getting different injections and on some performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, last time I checked, there was nothing in the Geneva and the Hague conventions against performance-enhancing drugs. You know, if it shaves a couple of seconds off their run or their swim, helps them kick in a door and get the drop on the bad guys faster. These guys are going to do it. So I wanted to mirror that in Harvath, that he doesn't want to leave the field yet. He wants to stay in the game. He needs the game. Yeah, it's also interesting. You note at the beginning, as this mission is coming online, that he's been offered to take over the company, to take over the business if he wants, and he just can't. But so let's talk about this, because the book, as you sort of described it, I think in, in one of the things I saw, you sort of almost wrote this book in real time, as you call it, which is it's based in Ukraine. It is about, obviously, that we're now 16, 17 months into the Russian invasion, the horror of this invasion, what the Russians have been willing to do. But also, just as your book is coming out, right, the Wagner Group, which is prominently featured in the book, is in the news. Prigozhin, who was the head of the Wagner Group, right, led this group up towards Moscow, got to Rostov, and then, for whatever reason, decided not to go any further. So tell us about how you decided to write this and, you know, obviously Ukraine, you, you see throughout, you know, your feelings personally as an author about what's going on in Ukraine. But tell us about how you found out about the Wagner Group. Tell us a little bit more about them, because really, other than what so many of us saw on cable television or read in the newspaper, really don't know much about these guys. Yeah. So I've written about the Wagner Group in several of my thrillers because they always fascinated me. Technically, PMC's private military corporations are illegal in Russia, yet Wagner's been able to operate 
And essentially what they are is they're a shadow militia that is able to kind of carry out things that Putin wants carried out around the world without attribution, without fingerprints, if you will. There's a, I don't think I call it a plausible deniability that's there because everybody knows about the connection, but Putin had the ability to say, I don't know, you know, he was the Sergeant Schultz of diplomats when it came to, was Wagner involved in anything? So Wagner was involved in Syria. We actually took out like a hundred of their guys in Syria at one point. And there's some question about whether, I'm not going to say the Russian military allowed it to happen, but we were trying to ID some people that were closing in on some American troops and the deconflict didn't happen from the Russian military. And these guys got wiped out, a hundred of them. But anyway, they're an interesting group, but I've always found them interesting. Prigozhin, we've heard a lot about in the news recently because he leads Wagner. He had been really pissed that his guys were not getting the munitions and things like that that they needed in the war in Ukraine. And he had been calling Putin's general chief of the military staff out. I get all these Russian terms screwed up, but they're two big guys in the Russian military structure that he was calling out because his guys didn't have proper equipment, proper food, proper ammunition, things like that. So anyway, Prigozhin, fascinating, fascinating guy. But what I wanted to do with Deadfall, so I'm a thriller writer and my job is to beat the headlines. But this book, I grew up loving World War II thrillers. One of my favorites is by Alistair MacLean, Where Eagles Dare, great movie with Clint Eastwood. And I always wanted to take my guy, Scott Harvath. And by the way, thank you for that great intro. For people that have never read a Brad Thor thriller, I tell them that my books are like the James Bond movies. It doesn't matter if you've ever seen a James Bond movie before, you can go and see the latest one in the theater and you'll totally be okay. You're not going to miss out. So, with the war in Ukraine, I was afforded an opportunity to write a World War II style thriller, but in a contemporary setting. I mean, I love Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers, Fury with Brad Pitt, even down to the Monuments Men with John Goodman and uh, George Clooney. So I wanted to take Harvath, put him in Ukraine and write a story that would be evergreen, that you could pick up Deadfall 10, 15 years from now and still have a great white knuckle thrill ride. And so the idea behind Deadfall is that there is an American aid worker. She's gone missing. She's actually an attorney from Chicago that's sitting in a bar, Butch McGuire's on Division Street one night, and she's looking up and the TV's on and it's another report about the atrocities in Ukraine. And she's had it. She's of Ukrainian descent. I have a lot of friends like that in Chicago where I'm from. And she decides, I'm going to go over and make a difference. And she goes over and helps supply orphanages. And one orphanage is woefully understaffed. And she decides, I'm going to work here. Even though it's very close to the war, I'm going to try to help this orphanage. And the Wagner group in my book has a group of guys who go rogue and are committing horrific war crimes across Ukraine. And the Harvath gets called in and the United States government says, we can't let you go over with your teammates because that'll put American boots on the ground. Your boots are the only ones that we're going to allow. We're going to die. We sent you, but go find her. We don't know what happened to her, but go find her and kill everyone responsible for her going missing. And so that's the genesis. That's the idea of Deadfall. Let's talk a little bit about the Wagner guys. I mean, in the context of not only in the book, but also... In reality, as you said, your your book and reality are sort of crisscrossing here. It doesn't seem, especially in a country like Russia, or maybe it does, and I'm just not up on my stuff, that you'd want to have an independent body of heavily armed men, some of whom have come from God knows where, many are criminals, you know, alongside your standing army. I, I would expect that there would be, by definition, not only a natural tension, but also perhaps a rivalry 
amongst, you know, who gets paid more, who gets equipment, you know, who gets sent to the worst places, you know, who's cannon fodder, who gets to, you know, go places where they think the duty might be a little bit easier. So talk to us a little bit about how something like that works, because it wouldn't seem to be a good idea. Listen, Yevgeny Prigozhin is a scumbag, the head of the Wagner Group. This guy is a scumbag. If you could take Tony Soprano and make him even worse, that's Yevgeny Prigozhin. I mean, Prigozhin spent about nine years in the Soviet prison system for a string of luxury apartment burglaries. So convicted criminal and got out, had a hot dog stand that he, air quotes, parlayed into a catering business. He got known as Putin's chef. Listen, this is a gangster government. This is a kleptocracy. These people are all massive, massive scumbags. There are no good people in Putin's inner circle. They all suck. They are the worst of the worst human scum. So essentially what this is, is it's a mafia organization. And you've got certain wings that are responsible for certain things. And Prigozhin and the Wagner Group are basically armed thugs who have gotten better training than the average grunts in the Russian military. So they've not only gotten better training, but it's like the Chinese military. The Chinese military has zero combat experience. All they've done is put down street protests in China. That's the only experience they have. Prigozhin's guys have been in Africa being hired muscle thugs to enforce the will of dictators in exchange for you know concessions for mining rights and things like this. It really is the best way to look at this is as a mafia organization. So the Wagner Group, basically, they serve at Putin's will, even though Putin denies that they serve at his will and at his pleasure. So, yeah, could you have the potential for like the coup? What we heard was an attempted coup and all that kind of stuff. Yes, that goes back to Machiavelli. Do not base your power on mercenaries. Don't base your hold on political power on the backs of mercenaries. It's long been known as a bad thing. So, you know, it's interesting. June 23rd, they rolled up, as you said, Rasavadan. They got, what is that, less than 200 kilometers away, I think, from Moscow. And then it falls apart. And, you know, I've seen a video of Prigozhin shot against, like, the setting sun, which, you know, could have been shot at any time. One photo of him with an African politician, and then there was an audio message on his Telegram channel. We really have not seen Prigozhin since June 24th when he hopped in his car and drove off. Allegedly, the president of Belarus had negotiated something. So it's been very interesting to watch all the Wagner stuff unfold. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Let's zoom out from Ukraine and, and zoom back into the United States in your book, because you have a cast of bad guys, too, here. You know, there's a Russian that, quote unquote, commits suicide off a balcony. You have a you know corrupt ex-politician. But there is one thing in particular. It's a two-word phrase that you use to describe this one corrupt guy. And it was post-American, that he considers himself, quote, post-American, that to him, it's not about service. It's not about country. It's not about democracy. He had chosen that his influence and his money were the things that mattered most to him. 
that he's a disgraced former politician that, you know, as far as he's concerned, if his voters in the country turned his back on him, he's going to turn his back on on us collectively. But that was one that really stuck with me, Brad, because I feel like there's a lot of people of import of extreme wealth, extreme power who might fit into that category nowadays. Absolutely. So thank you for pointing him out. He is a senator who got primaried. So to set it up, he is a senator who had a scandal and was unable to get reelected. And it's funny because America has now changed so much under his feet that even his colleagues who remained in Congress, well, they weren't a part of the scandal, but they, his colleagues who were in Congress said, oh, it's a shame. Had you been able to hold on for another six to nine months, America wouldn't have cared about your scandal. And that's a little bit of a reflection on how much we've surrendered to bad characters in our own government, in culturally, in our leadership here. I mean, I forget who it's, it may be Charlie Sykes over at the Bulwark who has pointed out that Trump, with all the indictments, and you look at him, and Trump wouldn't be allowed to coach a little league team. He wouldn't be allowed to be a dog walker. He couldn't run the loading dock at a Fortune 100, much less Fortune 500 company. And the only job available to him is president of the United States. How insane is that? So I wanted to catch a little bit of what I call Rome on the Potomac via this character in the fact that he's post-American in the sense that he feels he got a raw deal. He doesn't care about America. He only cares about himself. And so he's gone to K Street to become a lobbyist and he doesn't care what he lobbies for. He's kind of like Val Kilmer in The Saint where he's got, if I, once I get to whatever, I think Val Kilmer was like, once I make a hundred million, then I'm out. It was either 10 million or a hundred million. I'll do enough jobs. And once I make that amount of money, I'm gone. And that's what this guy is doing. He'll take anybody as a client. He'll do anything to get what the client wants, push through Congress just to get to that tote board up to that $10 million mark. And then he's going to pull his ripcord and he's gone. He's going to move to the Caribbean and he doesn't care what happens to the United States. Right. And I mean, corruption in politics goes back to the Fertile Crescent, right? So like this is not something new. And maybe it's not even new for America. But, you know, is post-Americanism now the way of the world or the way of America? Listen, populism is an absolute cancer. And what's unfortunate is we've never been able to completely excise it from the body politic. It kind of goes dormant for a while and then it pops back up. We are living through an absolutely ridiculous, ridiculous time politically in this country. Objectively, we are in the best moment in the best country in the history of the world. Yet we've got all these angry people rolling around who seem to think the world is ending and no matter how bad your personal tribe's politicians are, even the worst one on your side is better than even the best one on the other side, you know, which is insane to me. I'm the son of a United States Marine. We were raised that character is destiny and that you need to answer for what you do. To me, it's amazing to see the tribalism and the inability of people to put country above party and the conspiracy theories and the distrust in government. I'll get on my whole Tom Nichols soapbox here and I'll go for hours <laughs> uh, about how stupid it is to distrust experts, how much we need experts. And the one thing that gets me as an author and somebody who's had good friends and family in the FBI and good friends at the Central Intelligence Agency is this idea that somehow all of these great organizations that keep us safe and protect our way of life are shot through with bad actors. It's terrible. 
And you look at the Army now, and they're having, you know, God bless the Marines, they're amazing at meeting their recruiting levels. But one of the things we count on, particularly with the Army, is we count on generations of families serving. That's been a long-time thing. Grandpa was in the Army. Dad was in the Army. I'm going in the Army. And now, because of this, oh, we hate wokeness, and oh, the Department of Defense is too woke, and the Army's too woke— You've got people who normally would have encouraged their children to go into a life of service or at least to serve for a certain amount of time. We don't ever want to take them for granted. And we are lucky with an all-volunteer force. We are blessed by every single person who chooses to serve in our armed forces, regardless if they've had a relative or why they are serving. Some people, it's a gateway to college through the GI Bill. But to have what was once considered a proud heritage in many families stop where you've got grandparents and parents telling their kids, don't go do it. That's a problem. That's a problem. And it signifies a certain amount of cultural rot that's going on right now. Not to say there haven't been bad mistakes at the Defense Department, but culture is an evolving thing. And we have to draw from the culture that we have, not the culture we wish we have. And so if we want to recruit into the military, there are certain things that we have to be sensitive to. And listen, Dennis Miller used to say it. He says, I don't care if you're in a foxhole next to me and you've got a rifle and I got a rifle. I don't care who you sleep with. All I care about is you know how to aim that rifle and pull that trigger. So the junk of the the cultural stuff getting in there, it does have a corrosive effect after a while. Well, and as we've seen, to your point about culture right now that you mentioned the United States Marine Corps without a commandant, right, because of a specific culture issue. Oh, don't get me going on Tuberville. Don't get me going on Tuberville. <laughs> but again, these are things that we're seeing, you know, and, and to bring it back to the people in your book, right? Not only Harbath, but also all of the guys that he fights alongside who have all come, right? They're all expats who have come to Ukraine. They all came for a specific reason. As you know, having been the son of a Marine, you know, especially with these promotions, you know, or these different assignments, you know, kids got to get to school, wives or spouses need to find new jobs. Right. You got to move. You got to find a house. You got to do all this stuff. Some of it might be, you know, OK, I'm going to go from one, from one part of Florida to another. One of them might be I've got to go from Alaska to freaking Germany or something like that. So it, it has a, just this disconnective effect, chaotic effect on the fabric of not only the men and women who are in service, but also their families. And as you know, as we've all heard with those of us who've had friends and family that served, right, is that if you're serving, your family's serving, too. Of course. Oh, gosh, family serve too. And I always make a big deal out of that. Um, Listen, we've got this jackass caucus in both the House and the Senate. There's a lot of norms that we've seen shattered, right? Particularly throughout the four years of the Trump administration. And this idea that one person can hold up all these appointments is nuts. There used to be kind of a, there was an understanding. I had dinner with a senator during the Obama administration from Tennessee. And I remember when the Republicans took back control of the Senate and I asked him, you know, what are you going to do? You know, what's the first thing up on the docket? What do you guys really hope to achieve? And he said, I'd like to bring comedy back to the Senate. And I was a fire breathing, red hot tea party guy. I had never made a picket sign. I had never marched in anything until one sixth of the economy got nationalized. And my health insurance rates went through the frickin' ceiling. And I didn't like that answer. I have mellowed since then. I think there's a lot to be said for comedy. I think Lamar Alexander, when he said that to me, 
he was on to something. And I don't know how long it'll take us to get back to that, because I think this nation has a lot more that unites us than divides us. And we've got a lot of serious business to attend to. But when one knucklehead can hold up the certification of an election or can hold up important appointments, I also don't like when, regardless of who the party is, I don't like that we don't get our ambassadors appointed quickly. I think you ought to be able to get whoever you want as the president. These are representatives of the United States of America. And to leave those positions unfilled, regardless of who's in the Oval Office, I think is terrible. So there's a lot of old school stuff that I think needs to be streamlined for the better of the nation. You know, to your point about guardrails, norms, a lot of that stuff has gone by the wayside. You know, from my perspective, the issue you have is, you know, the Tubervilles of the world, all that. Like, there was a story out as we're recording this today about the fact that, you know, even his Republican colleagues who are the quote unquote establishment, right, the Mitch McConnell's, the Lisa Murkowski's of the world, you know, really don't want to take him to task for it because they're afraid of all the other things that might happen. You know, McConnell says to him, look, it's not how I do it, but I guess you're going to do what you're going to do. And we don't want the Democrats changing the rules because, you know, if they change the rules, then, you know, what are we going to do? And then, you know, we may have to change rules as opposed to, hey, Joker, stop it. And I think it also speaks to, I mean, Tommy Tuberville just got reelected recently enough that he doesn't need to worry about his political prospects. He's from Alabama, you know, which is too bad on many levels. I love the state of Alabama. But to your point, like he thinks about this you know, not on a spectrum of left, right or right, wrong, but what's best for me. And the problem with that, as we know, is that, you know, there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of men and women and their families who are being held up because of this stuff. And it's I think it's completely selfish, you know, on his behalf to do something like that. So Yuval Levin really nailed it when he talked about one of the biggest problems is instead of serving institutions, people are using, politicians in particular, are using institutions to serve themselves. So you get these people that, listen, I love C-SPAN, but we need cameras out of Congress. These idiots, whether it's Marjorie Taylor Greene, Rand Paul, who I used to be friends with, who I think is an absolute jackass, as just be, he's going to go after Fauci now. I mean, the guy's like playing 18 holes every day and he wants to drag him back in. It's all about getting your little thing that you can you can monetize outrage. You can get your hit on Fox News. You know, so they stand on top of these institutions to get more attention and more dollars for themselves instead of being of the institution, serving the institution, and thereby performing their duties as elected representatives to serve the interests of the country. And that pisses me off. You know, I have a friend of mine who got elected to very high office in this country, and, you know, he keeps kissing Trump's ass. And he swore a duty to uphold and defend the United States Constitution, not Donald Trump. You know, and this guy didn't want to certify the election and all this nonsense. And he's a really smart guy really smart and accomplished before he ever entered the political realm. But he doesn't want to be on Trump's bad side. He wants to get reelected. And, you know, this stuff just disgusts me. All of these people who allow Trump to lead them around and dictate what they're going to do, anybody who bases their political service upon getting reelected instead of doing the job that they swore an oath to do are horrible, horrible Americans, in my opinion. Well, we might almost call them post-American. You got me. You got me. So tell us, how many more adventures does Scott Harvath have in him? You know what? I got to tell you, I have always sworn that Scott Harvath is my alter ego, just like I'm sure that Jack Ryan was for Clancy and Bond was for Ian Fleming. So 
you know, I've got several more in mind. The hardest thing is I like to wrap each one of my thrillers around a geopolitical event that I think is about to explode on your doorstep tomorrow. So that becomes the trick is kind of reading the tea leaves, looking over the horizon and figuring out what the next big thing is going to be. So he's, Harvest got quite a few more. I think uh, he's going to be kicking in doors and shooting bad guys for many years to come. Before I let you go, let's talk about that a little bit, because I know, uh, as I read in your bio, that you lecture on security. You and I were talking about, you know, talking to your hometown mayor years ago about security. You did some work with Homeland Security. What, what worries you from a security perspective? Whenever I'm asked about this on a national security level, I think the biggest risk to the United States is social media. And I'll tell you why. Too many people are in Facebook groups, Facebook pages. And what happens is they only go where people reinforce what they're already thinking and saying. So they trade ideas there thinking everybody thinks like I do. Well, guess what? That's where the Russians, the Chinese, the North Koreans, and the Iranians like to influence you because your guard is down. You think you're with like-minded people. So that's where you are most vulnerable to foreign manipulation. And so that's the thing about, we were talking about Prigozhin at the top of the podcast, Reed. So people now know him as head of the Wagner Group. But what a lot of people don't know is he's also the guy that founded and heads the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg, the big troll farm that was responsible for meddling in our elections, going back to 2016 and even before then. So Facebook is really, really dangerous because so many Americans shirk their responsibility of asking questions, of making sure, is this information right? And that's also where the outrage gets fueled, right? So there are certain blogs and websites and TV shows where they found the way to get eyeballs and the way to get people to keep returning is to make them angry. And as I said earlier, this is the best country at the best moment in history to be alive in. We have so much to be grateful for. There's so much more that unites us as Americans than divides us. Yet there are people who are so susceptible to being tweaked so that they're angry all the time. And I think when the Russians and the Chinese keep pushing on these fissures in our culture, they are achieving ends that they could never have imagined they'd be able to achieve for very little investment. They are driving us apart further into our tribes. And that's where I think the biggest danger to America lies. Right. And on the Facebook and the algorithm stuff and all that, and now we see it with Twitter and Musk is they know what they're doing is bad. They know what they're doing is wrong and they do it anyway. And I'll tell you this, Brad, I mean, that's if this era, God forbid, does go the wrong way, the title could be, and they did it anyway, right? They knew and they did it anyway. And I hope to God that that's not the case. But all right, before we let you go, where can we find, if you are on social media, as bad as it is, where can we find you and where else can we find out more about you and your books? So the best place for all of that, Reed, is bradthor.com. It's got the information about the books, got the information about all my social media. And I have one last thing to drop on you before we end the podcast, if I may. If I ever stopped writing books and decided to do something in service of the country, here's what it would be. I don't think we have enough normal people that show up for primaries. I think the reasons we get crap candidates is because the nuts from the far outer fringes, if I was going to start an organization, I would call it primary responsibility. And what I would want to do is to drive normies into primaries, Democrats, Republicans, independents. I would not tell you who to vote for. I would tell you, show up and vote in your primaries. 
But primary responsibility would be my organization, and I would encourage everybody across the political spectrum to come so that you could drown out the nuts that are creating these terrible candidates and bringing them forward. That'd be my service to America. Years ago, I was invited to speak to some then moderate Republicans when I was still a Republican. And they said, we keep getting these candidates. How come? And I said, it's our fault. And they're like, I said, we don't show up for primaries. Everybody's like, that person's crazy. I don't want anything to do with them. Either no one wants to run against the crazy or when someone does run against the crazy, to your point, Brad, the normies don't show up to help them out. Listen, GOP primaries started in the 1970s, right? So it used to be the smoke-filled room where you had the party elders say, we look across the country, who's the best person to bear our standard and has the best chance of winning in a general election? You know, the parties themselves is how weak the parties have become. And until the parties take back their power, there's a lot of power that's gone in the wrong direction. And there's a lot that can be fixed by the people who should be holding the power, taking it back. So we could do a whole other podcast on power and it'd be fascinating. All right. Well, let's do this. So in January 2025, you and I will get together. We'll record another podcast about how we how we go from there. In the meantime, listen, everybody, pick up Brad's new book, Deadfall. It reads like a thriller. It reads like a movie. I highly enjoyed it. I don't get to spend enough time reading books like yours. But thank you so much for joining. I will say this. Get mad at me if you want. Guys, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen on Instagram and threads at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Brad Thor, thanks for joining me. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.